We're going to turn now to God's Word. We will direct your attention once again to Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we're looking into the general theme that I believe is of interest to everybody. It is the theme, the life I now live. As far as I know, that's what everybody is busy doing right now. So we have a point of common agreement. We are told you only go round once in life. And I do not usually take my texts from the beer business, but they have a point. You only go round once in life. Or you could say we only have one lifetime. What we do with that lifetime is determined by the lifestyle that we adopt. And obviously there's a wide variety of lifestyles. We arrive at a lifestyle on the basis of the system of values that we have embraced. And the system of values that we embrace is predicated on the things that we believe, the things that we accept as being true and important. Now, if all that is true, then it would stand to reason that as we only go around once in life, it would stand to reason that occasionally we sit down and examine the bases of the system of values upon which we build our lifestyle in order that we might fulfill a lifetime. Because it could be that we have allowed some of these things to erode. It's possible that we have allowed some erroneous factors to come in. And that's why we're looking into what the Apostle Paul called in Galatians chapter 2, the life I now live. Now, when we look at Galatians chapter 2, one thing is immediately rather striking, and that is that as Paul explains the life that he now lives, there are some very negative aspects to it. For instance, he says in that particular context that he has died to the law. That's pretty negative. He says that he has been crucified with Christ. That's negative. A little further on in the letter to the Galatians, he says that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. That's negative. But whilst he is introducing these negative factors, it is in order that he might introduce the new positive dynamic that is behind all the system of beliefs and all the life that he lives. And that positive dynamic is this that in place of the law and in place of the flesh and in place of all the other things that used to drive him, he says the thing that dominates his thinking now is that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me and has risen from the dead to live in me. And now he said, the life I now live, I live by faith in this Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me, and lives within me. Well now, in order that we might see this stark contrast of living the life of faith as opposed to living dominated by the other dynamics, let's look into another one that we find in Galatians chapter 6. And I'd like to read this new statement in its context, starting with verse 12 of Galatians chapter 6. This is what Paul said. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. 
Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the remarkable statement. Through which or through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There is another very, very negative statement. But notice the negative statement is there to introduce the positive thing. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. The life I now live, he says, is not dominated by the law. The life I now live is not dominated by the flesh. The life I now live is not dominated by the world. None of these things are the prime concerns in my life. What matters is that I have been made a new person. I no longer live under the dynamic of those things. I live as a new person under this fundamental dynamic that Jesus, the Son of God, loved me, gave himself for me, rose again, and lives in me. And I live constantly by faith in him. That is basically what I wanted to convey to you. Now, I do have a few minutes left, so let me amplify these ideas. Now, you know that it's a good rule of biblical exposition that all texts should be interpreted in their context. If you take a text out of its context, you're left with a con. Never forget that. Now, the particular context needs to be understood here. The Apostle Paul was writing to the churches in Galatia that he had helped to found because a controversy had arisen in those churches. The reason for the controversy was that after Paul had established the churches there and moved on to do what he did best, that was established some more, some other people had come in and they were contradicting the message that Paul had preached there. The message that Paul had preached there was a cause of embarrassment to these people who'd come in after him, basically because they were worried about the thrust of what Paul was saying. This, in a nutshell, was the message that Paul was preaching. It was called the gospel, the good news. And Paul called it a gospel of emancipation. It was a liberating gospel. From what? Many of the people to whom Paul had preached had grown up in the Jewish tradition. The Jews, quite rightly, honored the memory of Moses and the law that Moses had been given by God for them. Over the years, they had taken very seriously the law of Moses, and they had gone to the rabbis, and they'd asked for clarification. And all the clarifications had been amassed, and now they had a huge system, not only of rites and rituals, but of rules and regulations. And the Jewish people, or many of the Jewish people, had arrived at the conclusion that the way that you were justified before God was by dotting all the legalistic I's and crossing all the legalistic T's and fulfilling all the demands of the law. And that this was basically how they were operating. 
Now Paul had come in and preached to them and said to them something that was outrageous in their thinking. You know what he told them? Nobody is justified by the works of the law. And he had explained why. (laughs) It's a very simple reason why nobody is justified by the works of the law. If you're going to be justified by the works of the law, you have to keep the whole law, you have to keep it all the time, and you have to not take a time off. You have to continue to honor and obey all aspects of the law all the time. And nobody has ever done it. Now, says the Apostle Paul, that presents us with a hopeless situation. If we're going to be justified by the works of the law and nobody has ever done it, that either means nobody will ever be made right with God or there's another way of doing it. And he said there is another way of doing it. That God who is holy and righteous and just and therefore must apply the law and the consequences of the law or he will stop being just is also a God of love and mercy and grace. Out of his love and mercy of grace, he has a great heart of compassion for all the people who've broken the law and who are not being justified by the law. And he has demonstrated his grace and love and mercy by sending his son, Jesus, to bear the consequences of our broken law, to bear the judgment for all our sins to be a perfect, substitutionary, sacrificial offering for sin himself for the sin of the whole world. This allows God to be holy and righteous and just and judge sin and loving and gracious and merciful to the sinner. And anybody who will acknowledge their sin and will say, Father... There is nothing in me that warrants your forgiveness. There is nothing in me that merits your love and grace. But I ask for you on the basis of your grace and your mercy and love manifested in Jesus who died for me, I ask you please to forgive me. I ask you please to put me in a position of being justified by grace through faith. Hear my cry, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Paul said, you do that and you will be justified by grace through faith. Now, that was his message. The people who come in after him had said, that's too easy, Paul. That is open to all kinds of abuse. That is going to mean that people can simply embrace cheap grace and say, okay, I've walked the aisle, I've said I was sorry, I've asked Jesus to forgive me, and they go out and live by the devil and know they'll go to heaven when they die. That's a modern version of what they were saying in those days. And they said the only way you can avoid that kind of thing is by making sure that people having been justified by faith then meticulously keep the law. So the way that you are saved is by grace through faith plus keeping all the details of the law. And Paul says, everything you add to grace as a means of salvation diminishes the efficacy of Christ. Have you got that? Everything that you add to grace as a means of salvation diminishes the efficacy 
of Christ. And he said, I will not have that. And so a tremendous controversy arises now in the church of Galatia. And that's why he wrote the epistle to the Galatians. Now, he decides that the time has come to take off the gloves as far as dealing with these characters. They have created all kinds of confusion in the church and he's had enough. So he begins to say some things about these leaders that we need to recognize. For instance, he points out the fundamental attitudes and motives behind these teachers who've come in after him. And he says some very, very straightforward things about them. He says, the first thing you need to know about these guys is this. They don't even practice themselves what they're telling you to do. That's the first thing. <laughs> well, that, that knocks a hole in their credibility for a start. The second thing that he says about them is this. They are more concerned about outward signs than inner reality. Now, he gets pretty straightforward about this. These people were insisting that they should keep the law. One of those requirements was that all the men, even if they weren't Jews, should be circumcised. And they were keeping track of how many circumcisions they'd had. So they would come and report, oh, we had a wonderful meeting last night, 397 circumcisions. Well, that's not very nice news, is it? Particularly if you're one of the 397. But we'll move along rather quickly. Now then, the third thing that he says about these people is that they recognize that there's a lot of persecution coming from some extreme groups of people who hold the position of the teachers who are coming into Galatia. The reason, the reason that the people who are saying what they're saying as they come into Galatia is this, that they don't want to be caught up in the persecution. Well, what was the persecution? The persecution was by some extreme Jewish groups who were totally opposed to the gospel that Paul was preaching. And they were making it very, very difficult, in fact, downright dangerous to be a Christian at that point. Now, the teachers who are coming into Galatia, they're saying, oh, we're not one of these crazy Christians who say that you're justified by grace through faith. Oh, no, 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 no. We're not part of them. We're insisting on people being circumcised. We're insisting on them keeping the law. We are doing all the eye-dotting and the T-crossing that is necessary. Don't persecute us. Lord, here are we. Persecute them. And they were ducking the issue. So Paul says they're not credible. Now he said in marked contrast to those people, let me tell you something. I have identified with Jesus dying on the cross as the only means of salvation. I have identified with him. Now he said there is a certain offense attaches to identifying with Jesus dying on the cross as the only means of salvation. These people want to duck the offense. They want to be politically correct. They don't want to say anything that would ever upset anybody. They want to avoid anything that could be offensive. And the Apostle Paul says, sorry, if you're going to preach the gospel, it is fundamentally offensive to people. The Christian gospel, the gospel of the cross, is uncomplicated. 
How uncomplicated is it? It is so uncomplicated that it applies as follows. Everybody's a sinner. We can't forgive ourselves. Jesus died that we might be forgiven and God will only forgive us for Christ's sake. It's very uncomplicated. It is uncomplimentary. It is uncomplimentary because it tells people you cannot save yourself. Only God can save you and boy, do you need to be saved. It is uncompromising for the message of the gospel put in the words of Jesus, says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Uncomplimentary, uncomplicated, uncompromising. It's called the offense of the cross. And the Apostle Paul says, these opponents of mine want to avoid at all costs the offense of the cross. He said, I take my stand on the cross and I take my lumps as well. And if it means that when I preach the gospel that there will be opposition and that opposition may actually become outright persecution, so be it. For I believe that if something is worth living for, it's worth dying for. Why would the apostle take this stand? Very simply, Because, you see, he believes that Jesus was the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. And the thinking of the apostle is very straightforward. And we can paraphrase it in the words of the great British missionary C.T. Studd, who said this. If it is true that Jesus Christ is God's Son and gave himself for me, no sacrifice that I can make could ever be too great. Now, he says, I don't boast in what these other people boast in. My sole boast is in the cross of Jesus Christ. That makes sense. If the only way that a man can be reconciled to God, if the only way that a woman's sins can be forgiven, if the only way that a human being who was created by God, for God, and lost God can be brought back to God is through the cross, pray tell me, what could possibly more, be more important than the message of the cross? Is there anything more important than an alienated human being being reconciled to the God upon whom that human being is utterly and totally dependent for life? and death, and eternity? There's nothing more important than that. If the only means of reconciliation is through the cross, of course Paul is right. God forbid that I should glory in anything other than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The interesting thing, of course, is this, that he then adds, whereby... The world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? What he's saying, in effect, is this. The Lord Jesus, when he died on the cross, died for me to deal with a lot of issues that I could not deal with myself. He died for me in my place. 
Now, says the Apostle Paul, does it not stand to reason that if there were some things that it was necessary for Christ to die for, for my benefit, if there are some things it was necessary for him to die for, is it not perfectly reasonable that I should be willing to die to what it was necessary for him to die for? I'll put it another way. Does it make any sense that I say, oh, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross and bearing the punishment of all my sin. That was so good of you. I am so grateful. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you that all my sins have been forgiven. And thank you that now I can go on sinning. What's wrong with that picture? Would it not make more sense to say, if it was necessary for Christ to die for these things, it is totally logical that I should be willing to die to what it was necessary for him to die for. And that is why the apostle doesn't just talk about Christ died for me. He insists on saying, and I died with I was made a new person. I operate on a whole new principle. I now live a new life. The life I now live, I don't live dominated by the law, dominated by the flesh, dominated by the world. I have died to those things. And the life I now live, I live by faith in a faithful Christ. And what did he do? He loved me. He gave himself for me. And he rose again. To live in me. So what's the focus now? The focus is on Jesus, the Son of God who died on the cross and rose again. And my glory and my boast and my focus is in him. In a sense, he is willing to die to the world because it was necessary for Christ to die for all the things that the world has done. But what is this world of which he speaks? The Greek word translated world here, is cosmos. That's right, you heard it right. Cosmos, the same as the English word. We borrowed it or stole it. Actually, we changed the spelling. There were spelled, the Greek spelling is K-O-S-M-O-S. The opposite of cosmos was chaos. <laughs> That's right. Uh, that found its way into our language as well. The original meaning of cosmos was a sense of order. So when soldiers were brought to attention and set in order on parade, the word to describe that was cosmos. The idea of the created order then began to take over in the development of this word. So now it becomes the whole of creation. That is the cosmos. But then as time went on, it began to focus on the inhabitants of creation. And then it began to focus not only on the inhabitants of creation, but it began to focus on the particular attitudes of the inhabitants of creation with reference to God himself. So cosmos, now it can mean the world in which we live, or it can mean the inhabitants of the world in which we live. God so loved the world, the inhabitants of the world, you see. Or it can mean the attitudes that prevail in the world. Love, 
not the world or the things that are in the world. It's, it's very obvious when you look at it that the world means different things in the New Testament. Otherwise, it contradicts itself. God loved the world. He gave his only son. Then immediately it says, you don't love the world. What it says is, God loves the inhabitants of the world, but we are not to love the prevailing attitudes of the inhabitants of the world. Just another little insight here that will be helpful to you. The word cosmetic comes from the word cosmos. Now, men, you, you, need to, you need to understand this. The whole point of cosmetic coming from cosmos is that a cosmetic is designed to restore order in the place of sheer chaos. <laughs> so never begrudge any finances expended on cosmetics because it's all about creating order out of chaos. I, I wanted to interject that so that there'd be something that you would remember from this talk. All right, moving right on now. The Apostle Paul, in effect, is saying this. This world, this society, this culture of which we're a part is shot through by worldliness, the prevailing attitude of people towards God. And let, let me give you three words to describe it. At best, this prevailing attitude is of apathy towards God. At worst, it is hostility towards God. And undergirding it all is a desire to be independent of God. Basically, that is the attitude of the society, of the culture of which we are a part. That is what it means by worldliness. Love not the attitude that wants to be apathetic of God, or hostile to God, or live independently of God. That is not the way to go. Why? Because apathy towards God, hostility towards God, independence of God has produced all kinds of sin and pain and brokenness for which it was necessary for Christ to die. Why in the world would we want to buy into those attitudes? So says the Apostle Paul, when Christ died for all the consequences of those attitudes and I receive forgiveness for my part in that whole thing, it dawned on me I was no longer free to go on living dominated by the attitudes of the world. I died to that. It lost its allure for me. It lost its hold on me. And I began to understand that when the cross was planted... It was planted right in my heart. And I became a disciple of Jesus. And what Jesus said is this, if you want to be my disciple, you come after me, you die yourself, and you take up your cross. And you follow me. What is a cross? A cross is a great big capital I ruled out. Not I, but Christ, who lives in me. Not I living, trying to keep the law. Not I living, 
engaging in all the desires and passions of the flesh, not I simply operating on the basis of the general consensus of the world around me that is predicated on apathy, hostility, or independence. No, no, that's not me anymore. The life I now live, I live predicated on Christ who lives in me. Well, I've just got a few minutes left. Let me try and give you some practical examples of this. When the Lord Jesus was talking to his disciples immediately prior to his departure, he said to them, now now men, I'm going back to heaven. And uh, he said, and you're not. Are there any questions? Well, well, yes. What's going to happen to us? He said, you are going to be left in the world. They said, well, um, the world has given you a very rough time, Jesus. He said, exactly. (laughs) Well, why would you leave us in it, seeing it gave you a rough time? He said, well, I've got certain things in mind for you, but, but Jesus... If you leave us in the world that gave you a rough time, it might give us a rough time. He said, right. In fact, let me just correct that assumption. You said this world might give you a rough time. That's wrong. It will. Let me give you the exact quote that Jesus gave them. He said, in the world you will have trouble. Are there any questions? In the world you will have to... (laughs) There used to be a preacher on Sunday morning television years ago. I don't think he's around now. I just saw him occasionally. He used to come on with a beautiful robe and had beautiful fountains playing in the background. And he would lean confidentially into the microphone and, and just talk eyeball to eyeball to you, sitting out there in television land. And he would say... Something good is going to happen to you. And I've often wondered how Jesus would have handled television on a Sunday morning. I wonder if he'd have worn a beautiful Geneva gown and got the fountains playing in the background and leaned confidentially into the microphone and said, Something bad. is going to happen to you. Oh, my dear sheep, guess where I'm going to send you? Into the midst of wolves. In the world, you will have trouble. And guess what? That is the chosen arena wherein you will be my disciples, left in. And he left us in this world, intentionally. But then he said to his disciples, but you are not of this world. What what, what does that mean, Master? Well, what it means is this, that there are certain prevalent attitudes in this world. And these prevalent attitudes have generated all kinds of garbage in this world. Now, this is what I want you to do. I want you to recognize 
what these things are, you know, independent attitudes of God, yeah? Apathy towards God, hostility towards God. And I want you to think this through, and I want you to see what comes out of these attitudes, and we call it sin. Now, he said, this is what I want you to realize, that you're going to be left in this world, and it will have a tremendous influence on you, obviously, (laughs) because you'll be breathing its atmosphere every time you breathe in. Every time you listen to something out there in society, you'll be listening to its philosophy. Every time you look at people acting and reacting, you'll be seeing how the world acts and reacts. You will be totally engulfed in it. But you are going to develop the ability to be left in it, but to be able to build a little wall where, whilst you're left in it, you're not of it. You will live differently. You will live distinctively. But you must not do that in such a way that you become isolated from it. Otherwise, there would be no point leaving you in it, would there? So you're left in it, but not of it. Well, if you're leaving us in it, not of it, what's the point? And he said, I'm glad you asked. For I am now going to send you to it. And you are, on the basis of being left in it but not of it, going to be qualified to live distinctively and differently and winsomely in such a way that you can then have credibility that will allow you to go to it and be an agent of change. This is my world and I want it back. And you guys are going to do it. You're left in it. You're not of it, you're sent to it. Now, I believe that Christian discipleship is simply holding those three things in tension. The easiest thing in the world is to settle for one of them. Oh, well, we are, we are left in it. Our sins have been forgiven. We're going to heaven when we die, and he's left us here now. And it doesn't matter really what we do. Because our sins have been forgiven and we're going to heaven when we die. So we're left in it. So let's make the most of it. (laughs) They're left in it. Have you ever met any of those? Don't look at them. (laughs) Now in marked contrast to them are the not of it. Oh, this is a wicked world. Oh, this is an insidious world. This world with its thinking and its attitude and its promotions and its emphasis and its philosophy is bombarding us on every side. So circle the wagons. Arm yourselves. Defend yourselves. Survival is the watchword. And whatever you do, keep yourselves separate from it. And Separation, which is a legitimate Biblical doctrine degenerates into isolation. We've got the left in it, and we've got the not of it, and we've got the sent to it. And the sent to it are the guys who say, we've got a big world to win out there, and now it's far estranged from us, and the church is totally antiquated, the church is totally out of touch, and what we've got to do is become relevant, and we've got to get alongside them, because we're sent to it. 
And so we will get right alongside them and we'll become so like them that they, they'll wonder what in the world the big fuss is about because they can't see any difference between us and them because we have become so relevant that we are now totally unfaithful because we forgot we were left in it to be not of it. So here's the challenge. What does it mean to be left in, not of, and sent to? I've been trying to think of an illustration I'll tell you a story here. I I hope it isn't self-serving. If it's not helpful, please forget it. No, I'm I'm serious. As a young fellow, about 21, 22 years of age, working in a bank, in a small branch, the manager of it was an ex-major in the Marines. When he was promoted to be manager there, he asked if I could go with him He was a tyrant, and everybody was ecstatic that he asked for me. The reason he asked for me was that I was an ex-Marine, and he said he didn't want wimps, he just wanted Marines. And so I go with him. One day he said to me, if Mrs. So-and-so calls, tell her I'm out. I said, oh, you're going out? He said, no. I said, I thought you said I was to tell her you were out. He said, I did. I said, but you're not going out. He said, that's right. I said, well, why would you want me to tell her you're out? He said, just tell her I'm out. But I said, you're not going out. (laughs) Now, I was young, you see. I was very young. Now, he had an extremely short fuse. And he said, I'm not going out. If she calls, you tell her I'm out. Get it? I said, I can't do that. Oh, he said, yes, you can. If you know what's good for you, you can do that. I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Now, the tension was rising. And I'm thinking, I'm in deep water now. Because the system they had there was secret reports. And your whole career was predicated on the kind of report you got from your boss. They never went over it with you. You never knew what they'd told you. I knew I was in trouble. I said to him, I'm sorry, can't tell him that if you're not out. And he said, you will do exactly what you're told. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And he lost it. He started to yell and shout and curse. And he was just absolutely furious with me. And I heard a little voice that surprised me saying, I think I've upset you. (laughs) And I realized the voice was mine. And then I said, even more surprised to hear the little voice say this, I think I've upset you and I don't know why you're upset. Because if I tell a lie for you, you'll know I'm a liar. And if you know you've got a liar working for you, how would you ever trust me again? Sorry, I'm not a liar. I don't tell lies. I'm not going to tell a lie for you and I'll never tell a lie to you. Very interesting. It was like we stuck a pin in him. Totally deflated. He stomped out of the office, went into his private office, slammed the door. I ran the bank for an hour on my own. Never saw him again. After an hour he came out, I wondered what in the world was going to happen. And he said, I am so sorry. 
you were right. You have shown me something today that I needed to know. I promise you something. As long as you're in this business, and as long as I'm in this business, it has anything to do with me, you are going right to the top. We need people who know what they believe. I hope this is not self-serving. I'm trying to illustrate something. I'd been dropped right in it. I wasn't left in it. I was dropped right in it. The world of business. Where all kinds of things go and you know it and I know it. The incredible privilege that the believer has is to say, I know what happens in the world of business. I know what is regarded as normative. I know the stuff that goes on. But you see, one day... The cross of Christ was planted in my heart and the world was crucified to me and I was crucified to the world and I decided I wasn't going to live for that stuff any longer. I was going to live for the Christ who loved me and gave himself for me and rose again to live in me and I was going to live on the principle not of what everybody else does but on the principle of who Christ is in my life. I believe. That if we say, I'm left in it, not to be of it, it will be rough. The offense of the cross will be real. There may even be persecution, but through it all will come out a credible witness. And when there's a credible witness, we can be sent to it and be agents of change. And it's just another dimension of the life I now live. Let's pray together. Lord, we're going to be heading out into this world, this wonderful, beautiful, gorgeous, ugly, frightening, endearing, challenging, corrupting world. And none of it takes you by surprise. You spent 33 years in it and you saw it at its worst and you intentionally left us in it. If you've been primarily concerned with just rescuing us, you'd have hauled us out of it the moment we were converted because you couldn't have risked leaving us here to mess up. But incredibly, you left us in it to live differently from it in order to be agents of change in it. And you're asking us today to consider what it means to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us and rose again to live in us because the cross has taken root in our hearts. We've died to this world and we're living in newness of life. Help us, dear Lord, to grasp these things and be gripped by them. So to embrace them and live in obedience to them that will bring you joy and bring this hurting old world of ours great blessing. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.